Hear now God's holy word, continuing our study in the book of 1 Samuel. The men of Kirjath-Jerim came and took the ark of Yahweh and brought it into the house of Abinadab on the hill and consecrated Eleazar his son to keep the ark of Yahweh. So it was that the ark remained in Kirjath-Jerim a long time. It was there 20 years, and all the house of Israel lamented after Yahweh. Then Samuel spoke to all the house of Israel, saying, If you return to Yahweh with all your hearts, then put away the foreign gods and the asterisks from among you, and prepare your hearts for Yahweh, and serve him only, and he will deliver you from the hand of the Philistines. So the children of Israel put away the Baals and the asterisks and served Yahweh only. Thus far the reading of God's word. Let us give thanks together. Father, as we enter into the study of your word today, we ask for your Holy Spirit to guide our thoughts and to guide our hearts and to guide us into truth and to obedience. Father, uh, purify our thoughts and my speech today so that I might not say anything that's not helpful, that you would free me and deliver me from all error. You would deliver us all from distraction. And may we hear you speak to us through your word today. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. This past week, I read a uh, ridiculous news article about a man in New Hampshire who lost his life savings playing a carnival game. And all he had to show for it was this big stuffed yellow banana. That's, that's what he had to show for it coming away from it. Carnival games, as you know, are, are notoriously rigged in favor of the house, right? They're, they're not things that you can win. And the proprietors of these games are pretty slick into convincing people that if you just take three more chances, you can probably win this time. Just, just get another ticket. Just one more time, you'll get, it, you'll get it this time. And they sucker people in to taking these chances. Well, this man was suckered into a game where you throw a softball into this tilted bucket and it looks easy, except the momentum, when you throw the ball, the momentum, it spins the ball around and sends it right back out. And he thought it looked easy. And the, and the grand prize was, uh, was a, a brand new Xbox, uh, which, by the way, uh, is about $300 if you just want to go buy one. Uh, you don't have to go to the carnival to win one. Uh, but the game was set up in such a way that you can't win. And so when he first started playing the game, he dropped $300 in just the first few minutes. Now again, just about the price of a new Xbox. And after spending all the cash he had on him, he went home to get $2,300 more. And he came back to the carnival and lost all of that as well. And the big giant stuffed banana was his consolation prize. He went home and he uh, called the TV news station the next day. Now there's so much wrong with this story so if your life savings won't buy a 2004 Toyota Corolla, maybe you shouldn't be taking your nest egg down to the old carnival to, to blow it. Uh, but more than that, this is a logical, uh, this is an example of the logical misconception known as the sunk cost fallacy. It's one that my wife and I talk about a lot, or the gambler's fallacy. And it goes like this. I've already put this much time and this much money, and this much resources into a pursuit, and so therefore I must stick with it until it pays off. Because it's guaranteed to pay off. It's bound to pay off. I've already put this much effort into it. The more we have invested in something, the harder it is to walk away. So the more money this man lost at the carnival game, 
it became more and more difficult to walk away. At no point does he say, I've blown this much money. I'm not blowing anymore. No, it became something where he started throwing good money after bad. And there lies the fallacy. If something is a waste of time, if something is a waste of money, it doesn't become validated. It doesn't become more valuable by throwing more resources at it. The best investment is to walk away. And the sooner you walk away, the bigger your savings. The more you win, the sooner you walk away from a bad investment or a bad uh, 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 something that's taking your resources. And this comes up in so many areas of life, in, in many big ways and small ways. When you're waiting in line at uh, you know, McDonald's or Starbucks and the line is wrapped around the building and the line isn't moving and you've been sitting there for 15 minutes and you say, well, I've already spent this much time. I must therefore, you know, I've already invested this much of my day. I've got to see this pay off. And you sit in line another 10 or 12 minutes. Not only have you wasted that extra time, but you've also failed to uh, think about the fact that whatever situation up there that's keeping service slow is not going to produce something that I want to pay for when I get to the front of the line. Uh, that's, that's, we, we, however, think, I've already invested this much time. I've, I'm stuck here. Or, you know, uh, one that we thought about lately is, you know, I, I've spent four weeks and a hundred bucks on this terrible, pointless waste of time of a, of a kid's activity, but there's only six weeks left. So I better go ahead and invest the next six weeks into this terrible, awful waste of time kid's activity. We, we keep throwing uh, our, our good time after bad. And before I move on, this is also an area where we particularly need to protect our children as they move into courtships and they move into looking for uh, spouses that I've seen this happen too many times where a relationship goes along for so long that uh, it really is evident this is not a good match. This is not a good fit. But the parties involved think, I've already invested so much time. I've already given so much of myself. We have Christmas pictures together with this kid in these Christmas pictures. We must stick it out. We must stay with it. When in fact, really the best investment is to go your separate ways instead of keep pouring more emotion into something that's such a, such a wreck. So, so you have the idea of what, what a sunk cost fallacy is, what a gambler's fallacy is. And we saw this in play last week with Israel when we uh, came to 1 Samuel. When they arrayed themselves in battle against the Philistines, they weren't prepared to go up against the Philistines. There had been no repentance. There had been no covenant renewal. There had been no pouring themselves out before the face of the Lord. There had been no seeking God's will to do this. They just said, this is what we're going to do. And they got their heads handed to them. They lost 4,000 men on the first foray. They wanted to throw off the yoke of Philistine oppression, but they ended up losing horribly. So rather than considering that maybe we should try a different approach, maybe we should understand the will of the Lord as it relates to this current oppression. Instead of doing that, they double down on this bad investment and in, in fact lose 30,000 men the next time they lose the high priest, his sons die, and the Ark of the Covenant is lost all on the same day. Now in comparison, at least the guy at the carnival got a stuffed banana out of his bad investment. Israel got nothing. They got nothing out of this. It was a terrible loss of life and loss, uh, a demoralizing loss across the board. 
And, and this sunk cost fallacy is just one symptom of our inability to see what we're doing to ourselves. We keep plowing right ahead, headlong into sin and self-destruction. When, when sin begets sin, it makes us less able to understand our own condition. We're less apt to think clearly when we're being rebellious. And so we believe that the only solution is to keep doing more of what we're doing, doing the same thing, expecting different results. Repentance, on the other hand, requires a complete change of course. Repentance requires us to not put the next, you know, 50 down on another ticket to throw a softball in a bucket. It requires us to stop and say, this is stupid. I'm killing myself. I'm destroying myself. I have to hate the sin that destroys me. I have to hate it the way God hates it. Turn around and love the things God loves. As we saw last week, this usually takes some big, tragic, horrific event to turn us around. And even then, it's no guarantee. Because as soon as the Levites uh, get the ark back into their possession, remember it was captured by the Philistines, they get it back. What they do with it? These are Levites. They're supposed to know what God requires. And they flip open the lid of the ark and they look into it. They're, they're abusing God's holiness and they're abusing uh, God's, uh, God's throne here. And so they're no longer viewing it as a blessing or, a, or even a great tool for warfare, which was foolish to begin with. And that's when they reject it and they send it on down the road to another town. They send it to the town of Kirjath-Jerim, which was a Gibeonite city. Do you remember back in the book of Joshua, the Gibeonites were the tribe of Canaanite people who fooled Joshua into accepting them and thinking that they were from a far country. Remember, they had worn out clothes. They had moldy bread. They looked like they had been traveling for days when really they just come around the block and they come up to Joshua and say, oh, we're so weary. We've been traveling. Can we join you? And Joshua says, absolutely. And the people say, yeah, come on and join us. And then when they find out what happened, that's when they say, well, the Gibeonites, you can stay with us, but you're going to cut wood and you're going to carry water for the, for the worship of God and for the tabernacle. And that's what you're going to do. So, so the ark goes not to a Levitical city. The ark goes to a Gibeonite city. People descended from the Canaanites. It's like the people of God can't even handle this thing right now. It's got to, it's got to go into safekeeping. And that's where it stays. The ark stays there until many years later, when David picks it up from Kirjath-Jerim and takes it into Jerusalem, dancing before the ark, as we studied several weeks ago when we uh, looked at, at that passage on uh, Palm Sunday. So that's where the ark stays for many decades. What Israel needs now is a reboot. They need renewal and they need revival. They need a new birth, a new beginning. And that's going to take a willingness to stop sinking their investments into idol worship into pagan practices and all manner of wickedness. And Samuel is the man whom God has sent to turn them around and lead them into repentance. And in chapter seven is where we get to pick back up in the life and the story of Samuel. As we uh, get our context here and get our bearings, I've referred several times to the 40 year reign of the Philistines over the Israelites. The first 20 years of that time was fairly light. The Philistines didn't try to exterminate the Hebrews. They didn't, uh, they didn't put them to slavery. They didn't put them to hard labor. Uh, the most invasive thing they did over this time was that they outlawed blacksmiths and they took away all of their weapons and all of their ability to make 
iron weapons. It was an iron monopoly. We, we read later in 1 Samuel that if you even needed a farm tool sharpened, you had to take it down to one of the cities of Philistia. What was the point of this? Why did, why did the Philistines take away their weapons and outlaw the art of blacksmithing? Well, if you're occupying a land, you don't want these people to possess weapons. You don't want them making weapons. You want them docile and impotent. So if they're going to have weapons, they're going to have to beat their plowshares into swords, and they're going to have to beat their pruning hooks into spears to, to fight you. And this is why when you read the book of Judges, most of the weapons of warfare are um, domestic, like millstones, or they're agricultural, like an ox goad, or uh, you fight with whatever you pick up laying around, like the jawbone of a donkey. Why, why are they using all these odd weapons? Well, first of all, I love the theme that they're fighting God's enemies with the, the tools of warf- uh, their warfare tools are the, are the tools of agriculture and domesticity. They're fighting with work, basically. But also, uh, the, the bigger reason why is that they don't have any swords. They don't have any spears. Uh, They don't have any armor. They might have slings and they might have arrows, but they don't have uh, these, uh, these real weapons because the Philistines have taken them away. So the first 20 years of this, this oppression were light, but the second half of this 40 year oppression was much worse. It was much heavier. Once Israel rebelled at Aphek, as we saw last week, once the ark was captured at that battle, then the oppression grows more severe. They came down hard. Philistia came down hard on on these rebels. They intensify their government of Israel, and they're more a a daily presence in the lives of the Israelites. And it's at that point, with the death of Eli, with the destruction of the tabernacle, now with the intensification of Philistine oppression, Samuel begins his ministry at this point. And by the way, if we're tracking with Judges as well, I'm trying to always remind you of what's going on in Judges at the same time because a lot of this overlaps. Samson is beginning his uh, work at this same time. As Samson is harassing the Philistines and giving them grief, all the while Samuel is building up the nation of, of Israel. So this chapter 7 tells us how, how Samuel brought renewal to Israel and how the Philistines were ultimately defeated at the end of that 40-year period. What was Samson up to these 20 years between the battle of Aphek, the death of Eli, and the final defeat of the Philistines? Well, we have to piece some of it together from various parts of of Samuel and Chronicles. The first thing that he must have done was move the sanctuary. Once the ark was captured, you now have this vulnerable sanctuary at Shiloh. The lamp went out. There's no sacrifice. There's no praying. Nobody's lighting the altar of incense. Nobody's putting out the showbread. Nothing's going on at the tabernacle. But there's some really valuable furniture and artifacts and things that God gave them there. And so Samuel must have at some point soon after moved the sanctuary to Nob. Now, remember, if you know the story in life of David, Nob is where the tabernacle is when, when David goes there for, for sanctuary. And part of this must have been to hide it from the Philistines, lest they think, hey, you know, Israel's weak. Uh, let's kick them while they're down and let's take the rest of their, of their tabernacle furniture. So that's the first thing Samuel must have done is move the sanctuary. The second thing he had to do was reconstitute the priesthood. Samuel was called by God to be a prophet, but Samuel is not a descendant of Aaron. And if you're going to be a high priest, you have to be a descendant of Aaron. So Samuel can't be a high priest. 
Eli, the high priest, is dead. His sons are dead. There was a grandson that was just born, Ichabod, but you have to be 30 years old to be a high priest. Later we find out that Ichabod had a brother, Ahitub, uh, who becomes high priest. But let's say that Ahitub is 10 years older than Ichabod. Maybe he's 15 years older. Sometimes a brother can be 20 years older. It's still going to be a while before he's qualified to be a high priest. So here's the situation. Everyone who knows anything about the priesthood is dead. Everyone trained for the priesthood is gone. And those who are qualified by birth to be priests are too young. They're just kids. So uh, it's up to Samuel now to resurrect the priesthood from nothing. He has to set up the office of priest as God intended, and he's got to educate Israel. And so we read that he goes around to the Levitical cities, teaching, revitalizing them, and pointing them to their duties. In 1 Samuel 19, we'll later read that Samuel set up a school of the prophets, kind of like a theological seminary for the purpose of training men to go out and preach and bring revival to Israel. We also read that Samuel worked as a judge. Uh, so we could add uh, Samuel to the 12 judges in the, in the book of Judges. Not only did Samuel work as a deliverer, as those judges did, but, but when there are cases to be decided and they needed someone who knew the Bible to, to render a judgment, well, you call, you call Samuel. That's his job as well. And this, this other thing, to answer the question, what's he doing this whole time? And this is just speculation, but I wonder how much interaction he had with Samson through this period. We don't, we don't have any information about it. We don't have any direct engagement in the scriptures. But we also don't know very much about Samson except for the first part of his life and the very last part of his life. And there's a whole period where Samson judged Israel for 20 years, and we don't know what happened in between. Well, we do know that Samson's hometown of Zorah was less than 20 miles from where Samson's hometown of Ramah was. So, so 20 miles distance, that's about the distance from here to Durham. They had to have met. They had to have some kind of interaction. They had to have some kind of, of, uh, of, of work together. So uh, they might have encouraged each other in their missions. Samson would have been more of a kind of a guerrilla type of warrior, uh, destabilizing Philistine oppression, while Samuel works on spiritual renewal. And so, so Samuel's ministry during this period is very much like Jesus's ministry. The priesthood is dead in Jesus's time as well. And so he goes on this itinerant ministry, this, this itinerant preaching uh, journey to kind of restore Israel and renew the whole, uh, renew, uh, renew Israel. And that's Samuel's job. It's Samuel's job to rebuild society from nothing, to restore social order, to restore the religious order, and to do it from the inside, to undertake the long, arduous, painstaking task of teaching the people to break their idols and return to the Lord. Now, I'm going to pick up, and I just read it, but I want to focus in on, on verse 3, and we'll follow up from here. Samuel spoke to all the house of Israel, saying, if you return to Yahweh with all your hearts, then put away the foreign gods and the asterisks from among you and prepare your hearts for Yahweh and serve him only, and he will deliver you from the hand of the Philistines. So the children of Israel put away the Baals and the asterisks and served Yahweh only. So far in Samuel, we've only read about Dagon. This is the first we've heard of Baal and Ashtoreth, but those are the male and female false gods of the pagans. They're the kind of the forerunners to um, uh, Jupiter and um, 
Astarte or, or, um, or uh, Jupiter and Venus, rather. So we spend time reading about the corruption of the priests so far, but now we find out it's not only the priests who had a problem. The people had a problem as well. And Israel was defeated and oppressed by Philistia because Israel were idolaters. The problem's not simply at the top. It's, it's all throughout Israel. The people are worshiping idols. Now, of course, the two are closely related at the same time. Because the priests are corrupt, the people move into idolatry. And this is the very same situation that we have in our country today, especially with the church in our country. It is the church that is leading the world into idolatry. Very plain and simple. When you have a Muslim imam open the PCUSA General Assembly with prayer, and that's how they kick off their annual national meeting with a Muslim imam praying, when you have a heralding of the homosexual agenda from pulpits, not just CNN, not just college campuses, but from pulpits, when you have zero church discipline of any kind anywhere, when seminaries indoctrinate their students in the theology of doubt, first of all, starting out with the presupposition that there was no historical Adam, there was no historical Noah. These, these, things are, uh, these things are just given to interpretation. When this, is the, when this is the doctrine and the theology of the church, the world is not headed into destruction all by itself. The church is leading it there. The church is leading the world into idolatry and into sin. And, and we're finding out that when you worship false gods, that's who you get to rule over you. Uh, for, for Israel, when they wanted to worship the gods of the Philistines, guess what kind of rule that they had over them? They had Philistine rule. And so today, Christians love to serve the principles of secular humanism. And so that's what we're ruled by. We're ruled by secular humanistic principles. Now, if we would break our idols, we would have godly rulers. But we don't want godly rulers, and that's obvious because we have too much invested in the pagan ones. We have too much invested in our idols. It's going to take a crisis to change things. And so the faithful have to kind of be, we have to be praying for that. We have to be praying for some kind of watershed revival moment that God would break the, the hold that idolatry has on his church, that his church would grow a spine and, and function and, and exercise discipline and run out these uh, idolaters and, and these pagans from among the clergy, from, um, from the seminaries, run them out and, and declare them empty and Ichabod. That's what, we have to, that's what we have to do, and that's what we must be praying for. But that's the same situation it was in Israel. Yeah, the people were worshiping idols. Who taught them how to do that? Who led them there? It was the priesthood. So before Israel could move forward in history, before they could move out of this gutter of despair and oppression, they have to remove their idols. And happily, we see that they did so. And when they do, at the end of 40 years of Philistine occupation, God delivers Israel. Isn't that amazing? Isn't that funny how that happens? We put off our idols and God fights our enemies for us. The lesson is clear. If you break your idols, if you repent, of your sin and stop throwing yourself into wickedness, God will fight your enemies for you. God will deliver you. So Samuel gathers everyone together. He says, let's all gather and call upon the name of the Lord and ask him to remember his promises. In verse five, Samuel said, gather all Israel to Mizpah and I will pray to Yahweh for you. So they gathered together at Mizpah, drew water and poured it out before Yahweh. 
and they fasted that day and said there, we have sinned against Yahweh. And Samuel judged the children of Israel at Mizpah. Later in 2 Chronicles, we read that there was a great Passover in the days of Samuel. And this certainly must have been that great Passover. We don't read of any other great festival or any other great feast that, uh, that Samuel gathers Israel for. And this is where Samuel gathers Israel to renew covenant before the Lord. They gather at Mizpah and they pour out water before the Lord. Do you know how hard it is to collect water in the ancient world? Do you realize how, how arduous of a task it was for women every single day to take these great jars down to the river or down to the well and collect water and take it back to their home? Uh, that's why we often see women hanging around around wells in the Bible. Every time there's a well, there's a woman there. That's, where does Jesus meet a woman? At the well, right? There's wells and there's women. It's because this is part of her daily work for for if there's going to be water in her house, she's got to go get it, right? And uh, we just have it so easy to just turn the thing and it comes out and uh, turn it off and we're fine. So they have to go collect all this water, but they don't drink it and they don't wash in it. What do they do with it? They, they pour it all out. Now, there's nothing about this in Leviticus. There's nowhere where there's a ceremony about pouring out water prescribed, uh, but it's not hard to figure out what they're doing here. Pouring out has to do with prayer and repentance. Back in uh, chapter one, what does Hannah say when Eli says, get out of here, drunk woman? She says, I'm not drunk, but I have poured my soul out to the Lord. In uh, Lamentations, that book that's all about weeping over the destruction of Jerusalem, here's what, here's what uh, Jeremiah says in Lamentations. Their heart cried out to the Lord, O wall of the daughter of Zion, let tears run down like a river day and night. Give yourself no relief. Give your eyes no rest. Arise, cry out in the night. At the beginning of the watches, pour out your heart like water before the face of the Lord. Pour out your heart like water. Lift your hands toward him for the life of your young children who faint from hunger at the head of every street. And then in Psalm 22, y'all know this reference. This is the Psalm Jesus quotes and sings from the cross. Psalm 22, I am poured out like water and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within me. My strength is dried up like a potsherd, like a, like a scrap of pottery. And my tongue clings to my jaws. You have brought me to the dust of death. This is what's signified here. By the pouring out of water, they're saying we have poured out all of our, all of our tears. If the condition of the church and the condition of the world has not yet brought us to tears, are we really that concerned about it yet? I mean, do we, do we need some more crisis? Do we need some more penalty for our sin? What, what, what do we need to get to the point where we're actually pouring ourselves out like Israel does here, like Israel did, as Jeremiah describes in Lamentations, as Jesus poured out himself, not for his sins, obviously, but for our sins. Jesus pours out his tears for our sins, um, and yet we're just kind of happy-go-lucky and goofy and silly all the time, and there's no, there's no real thought or care or concern about our condition. That's what's signified here. And they're saying, we have poured out all of our tears and they fasted there on this day. So if they pour out all the water, they're not drinking any of it. Um, and with this open public display of repentance, Samuel declares them justified and forgiven. Now, with Israel gathered here at Bizpah, the whole congregation of Israel, what does Philistia think? 
Philistia thinks, oh, well, here we go again. They've gathered together for war. And they're half right. Maybe they're all the way right. Verse 7. Now, when the Philistines heard that the children of Israel had gathered together at Mizpah, the lords of the Philistines went up against Israel. And when the children of Israel heard of it, they were afraid of the Philistines. So the children of Israel said to Samuel, do not cease to cry out to Yahweh, our God, for us, that he may save us from the hand of the Philistines. When the Philistines hear about this great big worship gathering, they're threatened. They think this is a war party. And Again, there's a sense in which they're right. Worship is warfare, but the Philistines believe that we've got to make a preemptive strike. We've got to, we've got to hit them before they hit us. Now remember, Israel doesn't have any weapons though. And without weapons as an occupied nation, they haven't had any training for warfare in 40 years. Now, maybe 20 years ago, there were still some guys who knew how to fight, but this is now 40 years after the beginning of Philistine oppression. Nobody knows how to fight. Nobody's assembled to train. They don't have any conventional strength, no conventional defenses. So here comes Philistia marching to battle, armed to the teeth against an army, and only the loosest sense of that word. They're not really an army. An army that is defenseless, unprepared, unarmed, and weak from fasting. Two big events are about to happen at the same time. Again, something else is going on in the book of Judges. At the same time, Samson is brought into the temple of Dagon, where gathered there are all the priests and the lords and the judges of all five cities of the Philistines, all five capital cities. All the nobility of all five cities of the Philistines are present when Samson is brought into that temple. And when Samson brought that temple down, he decapitated Philistia. He he took down all the nobility. He took down all the lords. He took down all the power. We don't know which happened first. Does, does Samson go into Dagon's temple and knock it down and kill everybody? And then here, the last remains of the Philistines gather for war to kind of to strike back at Israel. Or does this happen first and then Samson finishes them off? I don't know what the order of events is. But as this army approaches now here at Mizpah, the people say to Samuel, don't stop praying for us. Don't stop crying out to Yahweh to save us. And this is when Samuel makes an offering. Verse 9. And Samuel took a suckling lamb and offered it as a whole burnt offering to Yahweh. Then Samuel cried out to Yahweh for Israel and Yahweh answered him. Now, as Samuel was offering up the burnt offering, the Philistines drew near to battle against Israel, but Yahweh thundered with a loud thunder upon the Philistines that day and so confused them that they were overcome before Israel. And the men of Israel went out of Mizpah and pursued the Philistines and drove them back as far as below Beth Car. Then Samuel took up a stone and set it up between Mizpah and Shen and called its name Ebenezer saying, thus far Yahweh has helped us. So many things happening at once. With the smoke of the sacrifice going up, Samuel is praying. The Philistines attack, and they're defeated while the sacrifice is on the altar. It reminds us of how Israel defeated the Malachites when Moses, as long as Moses' hands were up in the air in prayer, so Israel won against the Amalekites. When we pray... God fights our enemies. That's why it's so critical that we gather on Wednesday nights to pray and list all the things that need to be prayed for because while we are praying, God fights our enemies. He fights our battles. 
This was the original intent behind monasteries. And I know monasteries became corrupt and, and superstitious like, like anything else. Um, but this was the original idea behind monasteries that we would have men praying around the clock at various hours and offices of the day. And as you think about the time zones, uh, there's somebody praying somewhere in a monastery every minute of every day, 24 hours a day, prayers are being lifted up for Christendom, praying for God to protect and sustain his heritage to sustain civilization. So the the idea there is right. The people are praying and worshiping and God is the one who fights for Israel. What kind of offering does Samuel put on the altar? A suckling lamb. Leviticus says you can offer a lamb or a goat or a uh, a male bull after eight days. You, can, you can't offer him the first seven days, but after eight days you can offer him. And so this new lamb, this young lamb is obviously uh, uh, signifying that Israel has gone through a new birth. They have confessed their sins. Samuel has reconstituted the kingdom. And this marks a, a new beginning, a new birth. And since this is Passover also, a young lamb is the, is the appropriate sacrifice there as well. So while Israel worships, And Samuel puts the the lamb on the altar and the sweet smell of this acceptable sacrifice goes up to Yahweh. God thunders with a great thunder and completely confuses and obliterates the Philistines. Just like he thundered at Mount Sinai and the people said, I don't want to ever hear that again. Please, Moses, you go talk to Yahweh because we can't uh, sustain this. this. This shout of Yahweh is so loud and so mind-shattering that it completely disorients and utterly liquefies the courage of the Philistines. You've probably heard a loud clap of thunder outside before. That's kind of rattled your bones. Last summer, uh, we were in Manhattan when a loud pop-up summer storm just rolled through the city and the thunder reverberating off of the buildings shook the core of my being and it actually it it shot my adrenaline up and my hands were shaking I'd never heard anything that loud before and I thought just for a second the world is ending and I'm standing with my family in Sodom and Gomorrah and and this is it for me this is over it's terrifying to hear thunder that loud uh, remember the voice of God in John in John 12. Remember when um, remember when Jesus says, "Let me uh, turn to that real quick." Uh, in John 12, uh, Jesus says, "Father, glorify your name." And a voice came from heaven saying, "I have both glorified it and will glorify it again." Now John heard what was said, and Jesus heard what was said, but the people who stood by and heard it said that it had thundered. <laughs> God speaks from heaven. And those who aren't tuned in to the voice of God say, oh, that was, that was some pretty loud thunder. Evidently, the voice of God sounds like thunder, especially to the, especially to the uh, unbeliever and those who are not ready for it, those who are not listening for it. It is terrifying. To his people, he speaks peace, but to his enemies, he thunders. Psalm 29, I love Psalm 29. The voice of Yahweh is over the waters. The God of glory thunders. Yahweh is over many waters. The voice of Yahweh is powerful. Now, see, there's this this parallel between thunder and the voice of Yahweh. They're set together here. The voice of Yahweh is full of majesty. The voice of Yahweh 
breaks the cedars. Yes, Yahweh splinters the cedars of Lebanon. He makes them also skip like a calf, Lebanon and Syrian like a wild ox. The voice of Yahweh divides the flames of fire. The voice of Yahweh shakes the wilderness. Yahweh shakes the wilderness of Kadesh. The voice of Yahweh makes the deer give birth. And I think that's probably the, the calm, sensitive a uh, uh, peaceful voice of Yahweh, that he even makes the deer give birth. Or it could be that the shattering voice of Yahweh causes the deer to go into labor. Uh, we could read it either way, but it strips the forest bare, and in his temple, everyone says, glory. This is the thunder of God's voice that was heard by the Philistines, the, the thunder that shatters forests, the thunder that splinters cedars was sounded against the Philistine army and they were undone. They came apart. They couldn't, they couldn't keep it together. And as the Philistines begin to scatter, the Israelites pick up some kind of weapons. They pursue, they pursue the Philistines. They strike them down and defeat them. And after the victory, Samuel sets up a memorial stone as a reminder to tell the story to their children, as well as, as a reminder, as a memorial for God to say, this is Lord, you promised to, to protect us and deliver us. See how you've done this. And, and that's where Samuel says, thus far Yahweh has helped us. Verse 13, so the Philistines were subdued and they did not come anymore into the territory of Israel. And the hand of Yahweh was against the Philistines all the days of, of Samuel. Then the cities which the Philistines had taken from Israel were restored to Israel. From Ekron to Gath, and Israel recovered its territory from the hands of the Philistines. Also there was peace between Israel and the Amorites. And Samuel judged Israel all the days of his life. He went from year to year on a circuit to Bethel, Gilgal, and Mizpah, and judged Israel in all those places. But he always returned to Ramah, for his home was there. There he judged Israel, and there he built an altar to Yahweh. Well, we read that the Philistines were subdued and they, did, they didn't come back. And I know your first question is, well, wait a minute, what about Goliath? He came back and he was a Philistine. Well, yeah, they never came back to settle in Israel anymore. All during Samuel's life, they were always defeated. Israel was never conquered again by the Philistines and, and the Philistines never held any territory in Israel again. God's hand was against them every time, just as he broke the hands of Dagon and delivered his people from the hand of the Philistines. Now his hand is against the Philistines all the rest of Samuel's ministry and life. This battle reminds us again very quickly about the battle we read about last week where Israel came out uh, against Philistia. They arrayed themselves in battle formation and they lost. Let's think very quickly about a couple of contrasts between the battle we read about last week and this battle. First of all, Israel lost the first time. Israel won this time. But why? Well, Israel didn't repent or change anything before the first battle, but they held a covenant renewal service before the second battle. And you can even follow this out. And it almost, you could fit this right into our bulletin, what we do every Lord's Day. There was a call to worship. There was repentance, just as we fall on our knees and repent. There was a sacrifice. There was an offering, just as we offer ourselves a living sacrifice. There was a memorial, just like the Lord's Supper. And there was a commission as they went out and subdued the land. And as they do this, Yahweh fights for them. In the first battle, we had the ark but God's presence wasn't there. In the second battle, the ark wasn't there, but God's presence was very obviously 
very clearly there with them in the second battle. What had changed? It was, it was the worship and the repentance. At the first battle, Israel was physically prepared for war. They had some kind of weapons. They had made some kind of preparation. And they lost horribly. They were all ready to go. They had everything lined up. All the weapons of worldly warfare. And they got their heads handed to them. At the second battle, they were completely unprepared. They were caught off guard. And they won. What's different? All this reminds us. And, and so far, everything in 1 Samuel has, has constantly reminded us that God is the divine protector who will fight for his people. He fights our battles when we are faithful. Now, very soon, the people are going to forget this lesson. And they're going to ask for a king because Yahweh's not good enough for them. All these events leading up to this point is a demonstration that, that Israel, you don't need a king. And you're faithless in asking for a king just like the nations. We're all we're leading up to this fall that's coming in, in chapter 8. This entire program of renewal and revival that Samuel has been instituting has put Israel, for now, it's put Israel back into an Eden-like situation. The nation has been reconstituted. It's reordered. God is king and protector. The serpent is defeated. The land has peace. We are settled. We are in communion with God. God rests here with us. Eden is restored. But what happens every time you have a restored Eden in the Bible? What happens immediately after that? You have a fall. It happened with Adam, obviously. There was a fall. It happens with Noah. There's a reconstituted creation that Noah's the king of, and his son Ham does something foolish. And then at Mount Sinai, again, we're reconstituting Israel. And then, of course, we have uh, uh, Aaron creating the golden calf. And so the very next thing we will see is that the people were asked for a king just like the nations, and they'll fall back into sin and in need of deliverance. Nothing's going to change, of course, in history until Jesus comes and makes all things new. And so in so many ways, things are better for us than they were for them because of Jesus. Jesus has already roared at all of your enemies. Jesus has already thundered against everything that is causing you pain and is causing you hurt and is grieving you. Your besetting sins, your addictions, death itself, and Satan himself have all been defeated. They all have a death sentence on their head. When Jesus roared, when he thundered, it is finished. He thundered at all of our enemies just as surely as Yahweh thundered at the Philistines here. Jesus thundered against our enemies. The line of Judah has sounded. The thunderclap of God's wrath has reverberated all over creation. The judgment has been rendered on everything that stands in opposition to the, to the kingship of our Lord Jesus Christ. The question is now, why do you still love things that God has judged? Why do you still hold on to things that God has declared? This is, this is done. This is over with. I'm, I'm finished with this. This is going to be destroyed. Why do you still pour your heart into and invest your things in that God hates? Why do you love things that God despises? That's the question that remains. Because the judgment's already been rendered. The enemies have been defeated. So why are you hanging out with the Philistines? Why are you dressing like the Philistines? Why are you acting like the Philistines? Why, why does your speech sound like the Philistines? Why? 
Do you think that somehow they're going to come back and, and be really cool and popular again? You, you, think that, you think that somehow the Philistines are going are gonna to really make a, a, another run at it? They're not. Guess where the Philistines are today? They're not in the United Nations. <laughs> they're, they're, they're gone forever. And in the same way, Jesus has roared, he has thundered, he has doomed all these things that kill us and that hurt us and that cause us grief. And so my prayer and your prayer must be, Lord, retune my affections to love the things that you love and hate the things that you hate. Please let me never be found carrying around Philistine affections in my heart and in my head. Please kill those things. I pour myself out before you and I ask you to destroy those things in me that are killing me because you've already rendered your judgment against them. I want to be with you on the side of life, on the side of light, on the side of joy and blessing. That's what we're being called to do here. Just as Samuel led Israel to do this, so we're called every Lord's Day to do the same thing. Kill our idols. Knock them over just as surely as Dagon was knocked over. Knock over your idols and embrace the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we give you thanks and we praise you for the way that you have so ably conquered all those things that kill and destroy and harm and maim and all those things that desecrate and befoul good and pure and beautiful things. So Father, may we always embrace uh, life and hate death. Uh, tune our hearts, I pray this very thing, uh, uh, give us the right kind of affection for the things that you love and, and help us by your Holy Spirit to put away all of our idols. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.